Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. I want to keep bringing y'all high-quality content, but I cannot do that without your support. So please, help buy me a cup of coffee every month and join the Ward Republic by chipping in $5 per month through the supporting listener link in the show notes page. I am not part of a fancy podcasting network, and I don't like the restrictions that come along with certain advertising campaigns. So I am coming to y'all with my hat in my hand. So please help me keep this show going and keep it independent by doing your part and chipping in. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I do also have a Cash App profile for the show. So one-time contributions can be sent there. And all of this information is listed in the show notes page as well. And don't forget that Ward Republic membership includes a monthly video conference with myself and the other Ward Republic members. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold bags. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page, and if you use it, I will get a 1% commission, so that'll also help keep the show going. So click on my link in that show notes page and fuel monetary decentralization today. And if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you the group invite. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. Hello again, everybody. We are getting close to Thanksgiving. Actually, when y'all hear this episode, it should either be hopefully on Thanksgiving Day or on Black Friday if you're listening to it almost as soon as it's released. And as we come to the end of the year, just a couple of things I want to say that I'm thankful for. Obviously, Little Miss Jeffersonian came kicking into the world a few weeks ago. She's actually about five weeks old now, and I could not be happier thus far. She has made me and her mama both awful proud. So I'm very thankful for that. I'm also thankful for another year of the show, and I'm thankful for another year of support from you, the listeners. I could not do this show without y'all and your support. So please keep that in mind as we wind the year down. If you are looking for anywhere to throw a little bit of extra change, you won't get any sort of tax benefit for doing so, but I would definitely appreciate the support on my end. With that being said, we're still taking a break from the long view of the war for Southern independence. By popular demand, we're covering a couple of other topics And today's topic is going to be one that I've wanted to do for a while. This particular essay is honestly my very favorite Richard Weaver essay that I've ever read. It's called Two Types of American Individualism. And what Weaver does is he compares one type of American individualism that's based around the community in which he uses John Randolph of Roanoke as his beau ideal. And then he compares that or contrasts that with the cold anarchic individualism of someone like Henry David Thoreau. Now, Thoreau, if y'all recall from his time at Walden, was someone who had a lot of scorn for American society in the time in which he lived in it. And he had this to say, and this is actually still one of my all-time favorite quotes ever, uh, even though Thoreau is not somebody I I really aspire to anymore. But Thoreau had this to say about his time at Walden. He says, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not when I came to die discovered that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear. Nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and spartan, like as to put route all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. So I think there is some validity to that. If you want to escape society for a little while and kind of discover yourself and really discover what it means to live in the real world and live based on bare subsistence, I do think there's some validity to that. But Thoreau didn't really even live up to his own ideal. While he was at Walden, he would actually have people bring him food and stuff like that. He didn't really even try all that hard to live up to the ideal that he espoused with that quote, in my opinion. But in this essay... Weaver actually focuses on Thoreau's work, Civil Disobedience, where Thoreau is basically calling for a tax revolt uh, as a way to deprive the government of funds to carry out the Fugitive Slave Act and and things of that nature. So Thoreau was was pretty radical for his time. Uh, I don't necessarily know that he would be classified as a libertarian by the modern definition, but he definitely had a lot of libertarian sympathies. And what Weaver is going to do is kind of deconstruct the conservatarian in John Randolph of Roanoke 
and the anarchic libertarian of Thoreau in this essay. And again, this is this is my all-time favorite Richard Weaver essay that I've read so far, and I've read quite a few of his works. Now, this essay was published in 1963 in Modern Age, and from what I can find, it looks like this may have actually been one of Weaver's very last published works because he passed away in April of 1963. So the information on this, it says it was in Modern Age, Volume 7, uh, number two, spring 1963, page 119 to 134. So I, I don't exactly know when the spring edition of that particular magazine came out. But again, Weaver died on April 1st. So it, this had to have been just not long before his death. But let's go ahead and get started here. And we're going to treat this essay kind of like we do with a lot of the political speeches that we've covered. So what we'll do is read sections of it, and then we'll stop and have some commentary, talk about the modern application and overlaps. So again, this is titled Two Types of American Individualism, and Weaver starts off, Ours is an age in which individualism is publicly praised and privately snubbed. Individual liberty is called the chief goal of all our striving, while at the same time we hear offstage whispers to the effect that the social cost of individualism is too great a charge to be borne by a democratic world. Like all questions which give rise to one public attitude and a different practical procedure, this one may be said to be vital, involving contradictory urges. Individualism is too deeply a part of the heritage we have been taught to prize to be yielded up easily or thoughtlessly. At the same time, our modern world engenders forces which keep it on the defensive and drive it to seek refuge among the interstices of living. So this opening paragraph to me is really interesting. When we think about the time frame in which Richard Weaver is writing this essay, we're on the tail end of kind of the second era of good feelings after the end of World War II. You have this regimentation process where there is only one America. There's one American people for the glory of the American empire. And there are some pretty interesting videos on YouTube from people who were born during that baby boom period, maybe from the late 40s to the very early 50s, who kind of would come of age in the late 50s and early 60s, where they talk about just how regimented their day-to-day -day lives were. Like when they would go to school, you were taught one America for one American people. But who got to define that? Because as the agrarians asked back in the 1930s, who owns America? Who gets to define what the American experience is and what the American way is? So Richard Weaver saying this is very interesting because he's saying, look, we're, we're being told that to be an individualist is too much for our democratic society. We need one America and one American people. That's it. There's no room for dissent. So this is an interesting way to start off this essay because, again, he's going to explore the two different types of individualism as he sees them. But let's go ahead and get back to it and see what he has to say. Light can be shed on our problem by examining two types of American individualism each of which has had a major profit. One of the types is not now, and I think never was, a feasible form of individualism, though there is something about it which fascinates a part of our nature. The other is not only feasible, but is today very much needed, when the forces of regimentation and the example of totalitarianism are threatening to sweep away every principle of distinction that stands in their path. What I am going to propose will be a transvaluation of values in which a figure now rather obscure and de deprecated will be presented for the lesson he has to teach, and another figure, illustrious and much lauded, will be criticized. However, before even mentioning the names I shall be dealing with, I will offer a quotation which serves well as a prologue to the general problem. Reynald Nibor has written that there are two ways of denying our responsibilities to our fellow men. There is the way of imperialism, seeking to dominate them by our power. The other is the way of isolationism, seeking to withdraw from our responsibilities to them. Okay, so this is the first spot where I'm going to pick on libertarians. So for those of you in the audience who are still libertarian curious or kind of libertarian sympathetic, I want you all to really think about what Weaver just said here. There are two types of basically abdicating your responsibility to your fellow citizens. Again, he says one is the way of imperialism, which is where you just try to coerce them to your way of thinking or into your ideologies or your belief systems or your values. And then the other is to self-isolate or withhold your participation within your given polity. Now, libertarians are very, very good on that first one. A lot of libertarians, actually, I would say 99% of the ones I've ever interacted with, they are vehemently anti-imperialist, cultural imperialism, uh, martial imperialism, it basically just anti-imperialism in general. They do not believe in forcing their values on other people. They really kind of take an amoral approach, to borrow a phrase from show listener Mr. Tony, 
they take an amoral approach and just say, well, if we have the better ideas, then our beliefs will naturally kind of manifest and come to the fore. And I don't, I don't really think that's been the case. The Libertarian Party has officially been around since the early 1970s, and, and that I just don't think that that's really going to be the case after 50, almost 60 years of trying that. But where Libertarians struggle mightily, mightily, is they have a terrible propensity to say, well, I'm going to bury my head in the sand, I'm going to go live out you know, and basically be an island unto myself, and I don't care what society does. Society can crash and burn. I'm living out here in the woods. I live off the land. Some of them, actually most of them that I've interacted with, it's funny. They live in the city, and I don't really know how many survival skills they actually possess. But they have this idea that they can just police themselves, do everything they can in their own power, and they're going to be okay no matter what. Uh, Jason Stapleton would be somebody who kind of embodies this. He His kind of catchphrase is, I'm a winner and winners win. And that's how a lot of libertarians seem to think, is it does not matter what's going on around me. I don't care if society is crashing and burning. As long as I'm fine, then it's okay, because I, it doesn't matter. I, I'll just withdraw, and I'll go live by myself off in the woods, or I'll just move to another country, or I'll move to another area where they at least value freedom a little bit more, and everything is going to be hunky-dory. But as I've asked on the show before, what happens when you get to a point where there's no more hills to retreat to, and you have to take that stand. You have to fight. And I think a big problem with this now is that they've retreated so much, we're getting to that point where you have to decide, okay, I'm going to take my stand, or I'm just going to move around until everything crashes and burns. I'm not going to try to fight. So this is, again, the first thing that I'm going to point out where libertarians have an extreme weakness, because when they isolate themselves, if they truly believe their values and their po political philosophy is so powerful— I would say, and I would agree with, with Richard Weaver here, they have a social obligation to their fellow men to try and go out and get those local offices, to try to go out and get those state offices. If you want to try federal, that's fine. I think federal is a lost cause. But for your state and local offices, I would argue they have a moral responsibility to try to go out there and campaign and win those offices so they can implement that in their polity and see if that resonates with the local citizens. If it does, that's great. They'll stay in power and win election after election until they get term limited out. If it's not popular, hey, that's when you might reconsider and say, okay, is this a winnable fight? If I stay here and fight long term, do I think I can turn the tide? Or if I'm somewhere like in Southern California, maybe it is time to uproot and we'll, you know, we'll have a tactical withdrawal and we'll try again somewhere else. But the answer is never, never to just say, I didn't get my way, therefore I'm never going to vote again. Which I will tell you guys, after the primaries, I was, I was very upset. I was very angry to see how the primaries turned out. I thought the Republicans did abysmal because they, they ran piss-poor candidates. But I never once said, and I don't think that the answer to that is you just stop paying attention and completely abstain from participation. Whereas a lot of libertarians in a certain group that I'm in who lean towards the anarchist side, that was their takeaway. They said, well, if the Republicans can't win this, they're never going to win. That's it. I'm done voting. I'm never going to play again. And you can't do that. You can't just say, well, I'm going to take my ball and go home. Because again, as Weaver says, you're denying your services to your fellow men. And that in and of itself is a very antisocial behavior. And you must realize, I mean, libertarians have to understand this. You have to realize that man is a social and political creature. It does not matter how much you personally want to be left alone. There's always going to be do-gooders out there who are trying to get control of the reins of power and they're going to impact you. As Crystal Methodist, another fan of the show, likes to say, you can try to ignore the system all you want, but the system is not going to ignore you. So the best that you can do is provide your service and try to infuse some sanity and some rationality into it. But let's go ahead and get back to the essay because this is already going to be a longer episode, so I don't want to get hung up too much on here. But again, this is the first takeaway in the problem with modern libertarianism as it is currently applied. They have a terrible propensity to take their ball and go home, and then they wonder why things keep getting worse. So again, keep that in mind. That's the first point, but let's move forward. It is my purpose to study two characters from the American past who exemplify in their lives and their thought different responses to this exorable situation. Niver was expressing a dilemma which arises perennially out of the question of the individual's degree of commitment to society. One way to meet a dilemma, as logic tells us, is to seize a horn, that is, to accept one of the alternatives offered, but to cast doubt on the causal reasoning which underlies it.
This was the method attempted by Henry David Thoreau, whom I am citing as one of the two major prophets in the bulk of his social philosophy. Thoreau stood for individual isolation, but failed to see the consequences. Another way of meeting a dilemma is to slip between the horns, which means to find a third alternative without the painful consequences of the other two. The exponent of that method was John Randolph of Roanoke, now a half-legendary figure termed a political fantastic by one of his recent biographers and called a dangerous person by another critic, yet a figure of unique interest to one who has studied his career. Randolph stood with equal firmness against imperialism, especially in his disguised form of government welfareism. But he found an alternative to this and to simple withdrawal. I shall take up my examples in the order in which they appeared on the world stage. Randolph, like many of the class to which he belonged, was born on an ancestral estate, Cawson's near Petersburg, Virginia, on the eve of the Revolution. He grew up a member of the gentry at a time when, in the words of an early biographer, the gentry gave law to the state, and the state gave law to the Confederacy. From his early years, he was filled with a restive spirit, so that his education shows a great deal of shifting about. A brief attendance at a grammar school in Virginia, a year at Princeton, less than two years at Columbia, and a few weeks at William and Mary gave him a kind of educational odyssey. This was followed by three years of reading law under his uncle, Edmund Randolph, who was Washington's attorney general. The earliest vivid picture we have of Randolph comes during his first public speech, in which his opponent was none other than the agent Patrick Henry, then making his farewell appearance. Henry had, in the meanwhile, aligned himself with the Federalists, and Randolph attacked him in a three-hour argument defending states' rights. The great order of the revolution did not reply, but later he addressed this advice to his youthful opponent. My son, I have somewhat to say unto thee. Keep justice, keep truth, and you will live to think differently. But Henry was wrong in the prophecy. Randolph never came to think differently. He was, says his biographer, Joseph Glover Baldwin, the most consistent of all the politicians that ever lived in the republic, a judgment which may well stand today, a hundred years after it was made. The defense of states' rights in this maiden speech is the key to Randolph's political career and to his political philosophy. One may say political philosophy because whereas other leaders, North as well as South, rallied behind local autonomy when some special interest of their section or region seemed menaced, Randolph upheld it in every case in which the issue ever arose, whether the threat seemed great or small, near or remote. In the course of his famous debate with Hayne, Daniel Webster was to taunt the opposition with the question, does consistency consist merely of casting negative votes? In the case of Randolph, it almost may be said to have done so. He was probably the greatest oppositionist that ever appeared in Congress. But his opposition was to a consistent trend which he saw as carrying the nation away from Republican principles, which in his mind constituted the anchor of liberty. Elected to Congress at the age of 26, he held his seat for 14 years or until 1813 when he lost it as a result of opposing the War of 1812 another of his many stands of opposition. He was an ardent Jeffersonian, but he broke with Jefferson on a number of issues during the latter second administration. He drew further and further away from Jefferson's doctrinaire democracy. Back in Congress in 1815, he spent the rest of his career in dogged fights against all nationalizing tendencies, especially the tariff and the National Bank. When he learned that Madison had signed the bill incorporating the Bank of the United States, he expressed himself in a typical burst of rhetoric, the qualities of which I shall discuss later. True to his principle, he was denying that this power lay within the national government. As he says, quote, Sir, if I cannot give reason to the committee, they shall at least have authority. Thomas Jefferson, then in the vigor of his intellect, was one of the persons who denied the existence of such powers. James Madison was another. He and that masterly and unrivaled report in the legislature of Virginia, which is worthy to be the textbook of every American statesman, has settled this question. For me, to attempt to add anything to the arguments of that paper would be to attempt to gild refined gold, to paint the lily, to throw a perfume on the violet, to smooth the ice, to add another hue unto the rainbow, in every aspect of it wasteful and ridiculous excess. Neither will I hold up my farthing rushlight to the blaze of that meridian sun. But, sir, I cannot but deplore, my heart aches when I think of it, that the hand which erected that monument of political wisdom should have signed the act to incorporate the present bank of the United States, end quote. So Weaver's clearly spelling out that, you know, the South had a lot of issues with nationalizing institutions such as a central bank, and here John Randolph of Roanoke is even rebelling against James Madison, another Southerner, 
because Madison had gone soft on nationalization and gone soft on the bank. So keep that in mind, too, because a lot of this essay can tie in with modern politics and the problems that we're facing right now, today in 2022, almost 2023. But we also get tie-ins with the War for Southern Independence because Weaver says, look, the South has always opposed this stuff. So we need to keep that in mind because next, Weaver's going to tell us a little bit about Randolph's behavior during the nullification crisis of 1832, which I've covered before on the show But let's go ahead and see what Weaver has to say about that and how John Randolph of Roanoke responded. An episode near the end of his career shows special illumination upon the spirit of the whole of it. In the election of 1828, Randolph supported Jackson, talking about Andrew Jackson, for the presidency and was thereafter rewarded with the post of minister to Russia. Just why Jackson picked Randolph to go to Russia is a matter for curious speculation. A sardonic interpreter might suggest that what Jackson really wanted was to get him out of the country. At any rate, ill health caused him to resign that post after a short tenure, and he returned to the United States to face profound disillusionment with the new president. There had been nothing to indicate that Jackson was opposed to states' rights. He had certainly been elected by states' rights supporters, and he had campaigned against the policies of Adams and Clay, which had operated to give more power to the general government. Then came the controversy over nullification. South Carolina, opposing the tariff laws of 1828 and 1832, passed an ordinance declaring them null and void for that state. This was the sharpest conflict between federal and state authority which had yet appeared in the 40-odd years of the Republic. President Jackson, as is well known, asserted the federal power, made preparations for the use of force, and even threatened to hang the nullifiers. This development came like a thunderbolt to Randolph, who now saw the supposed champion of states' rights utilizing the most naked sort of coercion to suppress the action of a sovereign state. The centripetal tendency, the tendency toward centralization, which he had fought for three decades now, was showing itself more ominously than ever before. At this time, Randolph was within a year of his death and in a very failing condition. But he had himself lifted into his carriage and went about his old district, addressing the people and asking them to support resolutions against the president's proclamation. In one speech, he brought in the name of Henry Clay, his old political enemy, with whom he had fought a duel many years before, saying, quote, There is one man and one man only who can save this union. That man is Henry Clay. I know he has the power. I believe he will be found to have the patriotism and firmness equal to the occasion, end quote. Okay, and so right here, we're going to pause again and talk about how this compares with libertarian reactions to the midterms. So think about what we were saying. When John Randolph found out what Andrew Jackson was trying to do with the force bill, his, first, his immediate action was to ride to his local populace and his constituents and try to rally them against the bill. Now, in John Randolph's own words, he actually turned out to be the master rhetorician, as Weaver's going to talk about later on. He turned out to be the master rhetorician, and he said, you know, I'm ready to strap my dying body to my horse radical and go out here and lead the fight in defense of states' rights. And we need to embrace that. We need to rally around that because when you stir your local population, you can accomplish a lot. You can defy D.C. Now, libertarians, on the other hand, I'm not kidding y'all when I say this, they have a such a strong tendency to say, well, I didn't get my way, therefore I'm just not going to participate. That's one way that they say it. Another way is that voting legitimizes the system, therefore I'm going to withhold my vote, and aha, I've not legitimized it. But this year specifically, after the midterms, somebody in this prominent libertarian group online basically made a post saying, you know, I I had ignored politics for years and that worked for me because it was good for my mental health. I participated this year. I couldn't be more disappointed, so I'm just going to go back to not paying attention. And then somebody else made a comment of basically, well, okay, if you're going to do that, then what do we do or how do we move forward? And then somebody else responded to this in such an asinine manner, and they said, there is no we. There is no overlap, basically, between conservatives and libertarians. And Weaver had something to say about that. Now, that's in another essay of his called Conservatism and Libertarianism, The Common Ground. And we may cover that one. Uh, actually, maybe that'll be our next episode. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. But when we stop and think about it, there can be overlap, but it must be on the grounds of decentralization, conserving the autonomy and the right to self-government of the states. It can't be, well, I want to force liberty from above, from D.C. down. Therefore, if I don't get my way in these midterm federal elections, well, that's it. I'm taking my toy and going home. 
You cannot think of it like that. You have to think from the ground up. That's where everything starts. You have to take over your school boards, your city councils, your mayoral seats. You have to take over all these local offices and build this from the ground up because it must become a self-reinforcing political unit. It must. That's the only way any of this can ever work is if those who hold power closest to you align with your interest and your beliefs, you can have real representative government. And Weaver's going to talk about that too here momentarily. But when you have people close to you who hold similar interests and beliefs, they will represent you. And as long as they know that you have their back, they will fight for you in some cases. Now, we haven't seen that for a while. I mean, I would honestly say probably since about the 1960s, early 1970s. I, actually, I'll say the early 1970s, maybe the last time that George Wallace ran for president. We haven't seen a politician really who was willing to do that. Now, Donald Trump, the candidate, talked about it when he announced in 2015. He talked about it a lot. And I'll tell you all freely, I loved Donald Trump, the candidate. Now, I did not end up voting for him in 2016 because Rand Paul was also running, and I was actually more of a Rand Paul fan in terms of actual policy, whereas Trump was saying all the right things to play to what I felt. Rand played to the things that I thought, but or my analytical side. We'll, we'll say that. Rand Paul played better to my analytical side, but Trump actually hit on the things that I felt, the things that I could see immediately, and I had a strong reactionary feeling towards and I, I like that about Trump. I just, something about him, I never, I never really trusted him, but I did like what he had to say. And after I saw how his first term went, I also did not vote for him in, in 2020. I, I wrote in Rand Paul again. But this is what we need to keep in mind is what should our first reaction be? When we see something going on in D.C. or even at the state level that we don't like in the government, what should our first reaction be? Should it be, oh my gosh, I didn't get my way, that's it, I'm taking my ball and going home? Or should it be, you know what, I'm going to start going out here, I'm going to start talking to my friends and neighbors, and I'm going to try to build up a groundswell coalition to oppose this within my community. But to do that, we have to actually accept and understand that we are part of that community. We cannot sit there and hold ourselves in some sort of abstract isolation saying, well, I'm smarter than all these people because I've come to the conclusion that government in and of itself is the sum of all evil. Therefore, my politics are supreme. Ha, 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 ha. No, we can't do that. We cannot live on a platonic mountain and just, you know, basically hate the people around us because they do believe in the system and they participate in it. We have to be willing to get our hands dirty. We have to go out and talk to them and say, hey, Let's try to steer the conversation in this direction, or let's try to change policy in this direction and get these types of people elected so we can try to beat back some of this stuff. As we discussed with Lee Deming on a recent podcast episode, the uh, House representative in the state of Montana, that's what he did. He went out and knocked door to door. He talked to the people of Montana in his district, and he asked them, what are your concerns? When you look around, what, what is it that you're afraid of, or what is it that is starting to bother you or starting to impact your lives? And he said over and over again, it was the insanity, it, the, from the inflation to the woke stuff to all the crazy social agendas and everything else. It was the insanity coming out of D.C. that people were afraid of, but also the things that are starting to happen in their own state as cost of living increases and everything else. So that's what we have to do. We must engage. We cannot hold ourselves apart anymore. That has not worked and will not work. But let's go ahead and get back to it. How much effect Randolph's campaign had upon the final outcome, one can only conjecture. The outcome was a compromise brought about, in fact, by Clay, who once more used his peculiar talent for composing differences to resolve a crisis. A compromise bill was passed. The principle of protectionism was discarded. The tariffs were reduced, and South Carolina remained uninvaded. If I have sketched this episode at some length, it is to stress a salient feature of Randolph's political philosophy— as a defender of the dignity and autonomy of the smaller unit, he was constantly fighting the battle for local rights. But it was the essence of his position that the battle must be fought within the community, not outside the community, and not through means that would, in effect, deny all political organization. By instinct, Randolph was perhaps a secessionist. Every individualist is a secessionist in regard to many things. Individualism is a rejection of presumptive control from without. But Randolph never lost sight of the truth expressed in Aristotle's dictum that man is a political animal. His individualism is, therefore, what I am going to call the social bond, individualism. It battles unremittingly for individual rights while recognizing that these have to be secured within the social context. 
This last gesture of his life was symbolic. Randolph rushed to the defense of South Carolina, but called upon his old opponent and enemy, Henry Clay, Clay the Westerner, the nationalist, the advocate of the American system, to save the situation. Not because he desired either Clay or the system, but because this seemed the political desperate remedy. The point I seek to make is that Randolph could not visualize men solving political questions through simple self-isolation. Throughout the controversy, he declared himself opposed to nullification, which would have been simple unilateral action. Going back a few years in his career, we find a rare anomaly when we discover Randolph, with his pronounced localist views, lecturing New England upon the unwisdom of seceding from the Union. But less than two decades before the crisis over nullification, he had appealed to the erring sisters of the Northeast not to withdraw from the partnership of 1789. The New England secessionist movement had its climax in the Hartford Convention, an episode well known to students of American history as the first seriously meditated step toward the setting up of an independent confederacy. During the War of 1812, New England had suffered grievously under the Embargo Act and in general had found the war adverse to her interest. In 1814, a group of her leaders assembled at Hartford for the purpose of making a separate peace treaty with England, withdrawing from the United States and reorganizing a New England nation. At least those steps were in contemplation. At that time, Randolph addressed a letter to the, a prominent New England senator, having been advised that his admonitions would receive their just consideration. A few quotations will convey its thought and sentiment. Quote, It belongs to New England to say whether she will constitute a portion, an important and highly respected portion of this nation, or whether she will dwindle into that state of insignificant nominal independence, which is the precarious curse of the minor kingdoms of Europe. A separation made in the fullness of time, the effect of amicable arrangements, may prove mutually beneficial to both parties. Such would have been the effect of American independence if the British ministry could have listened to any suggestion but that of their impotent rage. But a settled hostility embittered by the keenest recollections must be the result of a disunion between you and us under the present circumstances. For with every other man of common sense, I have always regarded union as a means of liberty and safety, in other words, of happiness, and not as an end to which these are to be sacrificed. When I exhort to further patience to constitutional means of redress only, I know that there is such a thing as tyranny as well as oppression, and that there is no government, however restricted in its power, that may not, by abuse, under pretext of exercise of its constitutional authority, drive its unhappy subjects to desperation. Randolph's theory of how such disagreements could be resolved is clearly indicated in the closing passage. Quote, Our Constitution is an affair of compromise between the states, and this is the master key which unlocks all its difficulties. If any of the parties to the compact are dissatisfied with their share of influence, it is an affair of amicable discussion in the mode pointed out by the Constitution itself, but no cause for dissolving the Confederacy. End quote. This provides another interesting view of Randolph's theory of the obligation of the smaller unit to the larger. In one part of his irascible nature, he was a hotspur of hotspurs, inclined to cavil over the fraction of a hair when he discerned an issue. But in another part, he was a man of prudential wisdom, which is to say political wisdom. Nowhere in this letter does he say that New England's secession would be unconstitutional. He can even imagine a situation involving tyranny and subjection where it might have to be undertaken. What he is urging is that now in present circumstances, it would be very unwise, and this would be his estimate in any normal situation. His theory of politics did not favor a simple withdrawal as a solution. This was a renunciation of political privilege rather than the exercise of it. With all his individualism and eccentric bearing, he had too strong a sense of the social bond to see it as a practical recourse, unless things got so out of joint that subjection was the only alternative. As we shall find later, what Randolph saw as a last and problematical choice, Thoreau was inclined to see as a first step. At any rate, for Randolph as a politically conscious person, the fight should be waged within the whole and not outside it in some undefinable or ambiguous position. On the other hand, he was equally unyielding in his opposition to surrendering local rights out of veneration for some super-political organism called a union or a nation. His whole course was in a direction away from this, and now we must ask how the two positions can be reconciled. His theory of remaining within the whole while maintaining local rights, I will suggest, rested upon what military people call defense in depth and what political theorists call dispersal of power. Two names for the same kind of principle in different realms. The essential feature of it is that the further one tries to encroach against local autonomy, the more difficult it is to make headway. 
In military language, again, the depth of the resistance devitalizes the attack. It is left relatively easy to carry the outer works, but the next barrier is more difficult, and the next still more so, and so on. And the smaller and more cohesive the unit, the greater the discretionary power it has. As Randolph used the principle in practice, he fell back first upon what might be called sectional solidarity. The next line of defense was the state. How far back could the defense actually go? This is a question I think he deliberately would not have answered. In his view, it would have been one of those theoretic speculations, the sort of question which would have appealed to dialecticians of whom he was openly scornful. It was enough to have the working principle for use against the large, abstract, and uncomprehending force from the outside. Yet I think we might, in a way, answer it for him. The defense could never fall back as far as the single individual. Okay, and right there, Richard Weaver hits a grand slam. I mean, the big salami, the big tuna, whatever you want to call it. Richard Weaver knocks it out of the park. So a lot of libertarians will say, if you bring up the topic of secession, they're actually in favor of it, but they say, well, why not take that to its logical conclusion and just secede all the way down to the individual, and then boom, ha, you're in Ancapistan. And that's not workable. It will never be workable. Hans Hermann Hoppe is probably the libertarian who is closest to what I believe in terms of how society should be structured. He wants basically 10,000 Liechtensteins to replace the unitary state that is modern America. And with that, I don't necessarily disagree, although I wouldn't want them structured as monarchies. I don't necessarily disagree, but some of Hoppe's followers will kind of go beyond that and say, well, we need private covenant communities. And that's nothing more than like a small town. And when I say a small town, in many cases, that would be a small neighborhood. And you're still going to have a government. You're never going to reach a state of complete political anarchy. It will never, ever happen because there, there is safety in numbers. I, I mean, as much as we may not like to admit that, there is safety in numbers. So you're going to have some sort of governing authority, and I think it needs to be smaller than what it is now, but you do also need to make sure you have a large enough scale that it's big enough for defensive purposes. I think it can also be kind of a process where you go through different stages. So the first step should be to basically break D.C. at all costs. Whatever it takes, bring down D.C. To do that, I think currently the states are the only units powerful enough to even attempt it. And it would take a majority of states to try to buck the system to accomplish it if D.C. wanted to react in a violent manner. So firstly, we need to break D.C. and go down to the states. At that point, and I've said this several times on the show in the past when I've talked about secession and kind of what my outlook is for it. Only at that point am I even willing to consider entertaining questions of further decentralization. So right now you have some secession movements in California you have some secession movements in Oregon where they want to leave their super liberal states because they don't feel that they're represented and they want to go become parts of another state. I think in Oregon's case, they want to be part of Idaho. And while I do sympathize with them and I do wish that their state government would be more reflective of their desires, I don't think that's a good idea because you're, you're just going to have a situation where you're playing a numbers game within an overall union that's still kind of tilted against you. So I don't necessarily think it's a good idea. I think we need to break D.C. first. So let's say, hey, maybe the whole state of Oregon can leave. And then those Oregonians who don't feel that they have representation can talk, talk it out with their state government at that point and say, okay, now, now that we're free from D.C., we still want to leave and kind of go our own way and form a little smaller state. And I, I don't think that would be a bad thing. Same thing for California. If the whole state of California ever pulls off CalExit, I am all for the folks in Northern California having their free state of Jefferson. I think that would be a wonderful thing. But we have to break D.C. first. You have to break D.C. first. And again, currently the states are the only bodies politic in the United States that would be strong enough to do that. But let's go ahead and get back to the essay. Men have to work in some kind of concert. It is well if general objectives can be broad, and we should recall his appeal to New England not to allow the United States to be overthrown or dismembered by a common enemy. Yet it is important, too, for local jurisdictions to be equipped with a stout defense. In our traditional practice, it could be pointed out, we do fall back as far as the jury unit, whereby a small number of local people decide whether or not a man has been in violation of the law. Randolph was personally involved in one of the dominant issues of the time, and we can test further the consistency of his theory by considering how he stood on slavery. Like many Virginians of his class, he was the inheritor of Negro slaves, there being over 300 on his lands, 
1819, he wrote a will of which this was one of the opening clauses. Quote, I give to my slaves their freedom, to which my conscience tells me they are justly entitled. It has a long time been a matter of the deepest regret to me that the circumstances under which I inherited them and the obstacles thrown in the way by the laws of the land have prevented my emancipating them in my lifetime, which is my full intention to do in case I can accomplish it. End quote. Two years later, he wrote another will. Again, among the opening clauses were the following. Quote, I give and bequeath all my slaves their freedom, heartily regretting that I have ever been the owner of one. I give my executor a sum not exceeding $8,000, or as much thereof as may be necessary to transport and settle said slaves to and in some other state or territory of the U.S., given to all above the age of 40, not less than 10 acres of land each. Randolph wrote later wills. There were signs of mental unbalance near the close of his life. But it was this will, the will of 1821, which he affirmed on his deathbed and which the Virginia Court of Appeals eventually declared to be John Randolph's true will. And so just to pause here, I want to point out that this does show Randolph's humane side. Now, Randolph is not a philanthropist, and Weaver is going to say as much here momentarily. But Randolph recognizes that, hey, I have had these people under my charge. They have grown to be dependent on me. Therefore, if I set them free, I must provide for a way for them to provide for themselves. I have that obligation to them. I have that bond with them. Now, the reason he wanted to free them and send them off to another state is because he did not think that they would get a fair shake in the state of Virginia if they were to stay there. That is something I talk about a lot more in depth in my John Randolph episodes that I did early on in the podcast history. So if y'all want to go back and listen to those episodes, I highly encourage you to do so. But Randolph didn't think that his slaves could get a fair shake in the state of Virginia. He thought the local citizens would be too prejudiced against them. So he wanted them to have a truly fresh start. So he wanted to send them off to the state of Ohio. And let's just go ahead and see what Weaver has to say about that when it comes to what happened when the slaves got there. It is not the purpose of this citation to make Randolph appear a philanthropist, which he was not. The very mention of that word probably would have uncorked those sources of abusive eloquence which he possessed in such abundance. The point of interest for this exposition is that at the very time he was writing out the emancipation of his slaves, he was deeply involved in the Missouri question, trying to bring Missouri into the Union as a slave state. He took an extensive part in the debates, making speeches of three and four hours, but they may be boiled down to this essence. Missouri had a right to be admitted as a slave state, and Congress did not have a right to pass on the constitutionality of its constitution. Only the Electoral College had this right, he maintained, and we may note again the dispersal of authority. Now, the superficial inquirer might ask, what becomes of his much-praised consistency? He manumits slaves with one hand, and with the other he seeks to extend the slave territory. But this inconsistency dissolves when we look again at his major political premise— Matters of this kind must be dealt with by those who bear the impact of the responsibility. At the bottom was his theory of the necessity of a homogeneous basis of government. Government to be safe and to be free, he said, must consist of representatives having a common interest and a common feeling with the represented. This is the authentic Randolph note. Common interest was the final justification of government, the source of the means of operation, the assurance that it would not become perverted or despotic. Rightly or wrongly in this case, Randolph believed that other forces were the prime movers in the attempts to make the admission of Missouri a critical question. He saw a struggle for sectional dominance carried on by men personally far removed from the institution, but sensing in the feeling against slavery a strong horse to hitch to their wagon. He even declared that he did not believe in the sincerity of the professions of most of them, yet the crucial issue for him lay in the relation of power to those being affected. And this is always the crucial question for the anti-imperialist. This interesting story has a sequel, which should not be omitted here. Owing to a long period of litigation, it was the mid-40s before those charged with executing Randolph's will were in position to carry out its terms. Then Judge William Lee, one of the executors, bought 3,200 acres of land in Mercer County, Ohio, with the object of settling 400 freed Negroes upon small farms. But the Midwest was at that time very anti-Negro, and the inhabitants of the county forcibly prevented the Negroes from taking up residence. My sources do not tell what ultimately became of them. Now, in my John Randolph of Roanoke episodes, I actually was able to find some sources that have since materialized that detailed the fate of the Randolph slave. So if y'all want to hear that, make sure you go back and listen to my earlier episodes that I did on John Randolph of Roanoke, because that is actually a fascinating story. But back to the essay. 
Randolph deserves to be called a political conservative individualist for two reasons, which I hope by now are apparent. His belief in the limited, though real, role of government and his defense of the smaller but natural unit against the larger one which pretends a right to rule. Closely related to Randolph's political conservatism was his scorn for what he called dialectic. He was not always precise or knowing in his use of this term, but what we actually find in his discourse, if our attention is not diverted by the surface brilliance of the language, is a classical instance of the rhetor, or the master of rhetoric, contending against his enemies. Now the enemy of the rhetor is the dialectician, what I am saying here is to make a point, though it is only half true. As Aristotle maintained, rhetoric and dialectic are counterparts, each one needing the other. But rhetoric and dialectic may become dangerously separated, and then the users of them become enemies ceasing to help each other as both strive to go it alone. In this event, the dialectician becomes the mere abstract reasoner, and the rhetorician becomes a dealer in sensational appeals. The one ceases to recognize circumstances which are somewhat determinative in all historical questions. The other ceases to refer his facts to controlling principles and ideals. For the first, there are a good many jocular epithets, of which egghead is a modern instance. To the latter, the term demagogue is most widely applied. Kant observed that concept without precepts are empty, and percepts without concepts are blind. This will define the two opposed positions— Randolph thought he discerned among his enemies mere dialecticians, that is, men willing to crucify the conclusions of history and common sense upon some cross of logic. When he felt this way about the opposition, he went on with his usual impetuosity to attack the method of dialectic. Though these attacks are fragmentary and tend to be outbursts rather than careful analyses, they provide an exciting case of the rhetorician assailing the method of his counterpart. The focus of his attack was this, the direction of the state should never be given to a mere dialectician whose habit of mind incapacitates him for dealing with affairs of public concern and urgency. In a speech replying to Senator Everett of Massachusetts, he turned to the subject thus, quote, There is a class of men who possess great learning combined with inveterate professional habits and who are ipso facto, or perhaps I should rather say ipsis factus, for I must speak accurately as I speak before a professor, disqualified for any but secondary part anywhere. The mind of an accomplished and acute dialectician of an able lawyer, or if you please, of a great physician, may, by the long continuance of one pursuit, of one train of ideas, have its habits so inveterately fixed as effectually to disqualify the possessor for the command of the councils of a country. A man may be capable of making an able and ingenious argument on any subject within the sphere of his knowledge, but, sir, Every now and then the master sophist will start, as I have seen him start, at the monstrous conclusions to which his own artificial reason had brought himself. Thus a great diplomatist, like a certain animal, oscillating between the hay on different sides of him, wants some power from without, before he can decide from which bundle to make a trial. End quote. So let's stop right here and talk about this section just a little bit before we move on. So we're going to go back a little bit where it says, Randolph thought he discerned among his enemies mere dialecticians, that is, men willing to crucify the conclusions of history and common sense upon some cross of logic. Now, I'm going to tie this in with the collapse of FTX. FTX, for those of you who don't know, was a crypto exchange that had risen to massive prominence, and the founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, had started paying off Democratic politicians and making donations here, there, and everywhere to buy influence. And then FTX imploded because there was a good old-fashioned bank run on it. Now, a lot of libertarians are very tied into crypto. They, they are smart enough to store it in cold wallets. They don't keep it on the exchanges themselves. They, they actually, when they purchase it, they'll move it offline and, and put it on a cold wallet. But they do believe in the concept of crypto, and they want to see much less regulation in basically every industry out there. And I've gotten into arguments with several of them about whether or not fractional reserve lending is fraud, even if it's disclosed and the bank is fully transparent about it, I've, I've argued that, yes, it is still fraud. It doesn't matter if they're telling you they're committing fraud, it's still fraud. Whereas many libertarians, for some reason, actually say, well, no, if they tell you about it and you agree to the terms, well, then there's no harm, no foul. There's no fraud there. So FTX is actually a prime example of how a libertarian banking system could operate, not to say that it would, but how it could operate because there's no sort of guardrails there. But libertarians in their own mind will say, well, look, as long as we don't have government interfering, you just let people take their losses and move on. Well, okay, maybe. But what happens when 
every bank is acting like that or every crypto exchange is acting like that because now that FTX has gone down, you have Gemini platform, which may end up going under. There's BlockFi, which is most likely going under because FTX was their biggest creditor and keeping them afloat. So there's quite a few exchanges and crypto related platforms that are going to be going under because they were doing completely unregulated fractional reserve lending. They were taking in customer deposits and then turning around and lending those deposits out, but still telling customers, well, hey, we still have your money. Don't worry. You can withdraw it at any time. Well, when the customers actually did that, lo and behold, the company had no clothes. They, they were called in or called on their bluff and they had to capitulate. So Murray Rothbard, it, it's so interesting to me because Murray Rothbard, who many describe as the kind of father of modern anarcho-capitalism or anarcho-libertarianism, he actually said in his book, What Has Government Done to Our Money? That banks are operating at any and all time in a state of bankruptcy, specifically because of fractional reserve lending. But you have an offshoot of libertarians, and, and it's no few of them. I mean, I would actually say it's, it's probably about a 50-50 split at this point, where many of them say, well, no, as long as the bank is honest about what it's doing and the customer is willing to take the risk, it's not fraud. Whereas, again, my stance is kind of, look, we, we have a lot of experience, a lot of very hard experience from the late 1800s, early 1900s, up until the 1930s and 40s, where banks experimented with this and it did not end well. At what point do you say, well, let's use the power of the state to say, or the states separately in my ideal situation, but anyway, at what point do you use legislative authority to tell financial institutions they can't do this? It's a bad system. It's a bad setup. And they have to have fully backed reserves, which would mean you go to a more honest system where you have lending based on time deposits or CDs. That way your customers get a fair rate of interest on their money or on their deposits, and you still get to make a profit as a bank by charging interest on the loans. Not this funny money nonsense of, well, we've created a federal, a, a centralized banking system via the Federal Reserve where banks have legal sanction to go out and do fractional reserve lending, but then when we get these crypto platforms doing it, well, the people who lost money, they're just screwed. They, should, you know, they shouldn't have been idiots, and too bad for them. That's the libertarian response. That is the libertarian response. You let people learn their lesson the hard way, and I'm not completely opposed to that. Just to be transparent, I'm not completely opposed to that. But now you're going to have a huge call. I predict this right now, and so are a lot of experts, so-called experts, you're going to have a massive push for regulation in the crypto sphere. And I will be surprised, honestly, if the ultimate result of this is not just um, kind of an outlawing of private crypto and an introduction of government crypto, i.e. CBDCs or central bank digital currencies. Whatever route we take, there at a minimum will be huge regulation inbound on crypto now. And whatever advantages it may have had before, they're going to be gone. They are going to be gone. But libertarians did not want to hear that. They, all along the way, they did not want to hear that. They wanted to say, well, look, see how wonderful all this free market stuff is because the government's not involved with it and you can do this, that, and the other. Okay, well, yes, but now a lot of people lost their money. And maybe if we had had some sort of guardrails put on it, it may not have gotten to this point. I can't say that for sure because things didn't go that way, but I can speculate. So let's go ahead and get back to it. But just keep that in mind that... John Randolph really despised people who thought everything was just kind of based in la-la land or in, or in the world of theory, in the abstract world. He really deplored the fact that even back then you had so many politicians, especially in the North, who would not confront a concrete problem like the issue of slavery with concrete solutions to say, okay, we need to have some sort of outlet or we need to provide some sort of way for the slaves to be freed where we're not just bottling them up in these states. We need to provide freedom of movement. No, they didn't want to do that. They wanted to just say, well, in the abstract, it's not a good thing, and uh, it's something that puts a limit on our power because you slave states, you, you vote against our interest. So Randolph couldn't stand that, but in modern times, it's more so how do we deal with libertarians who are supposed to be the champions of freedom who will not come out of the world of ideas and come down here in the concrete world and fight back some of this stuff with the concrete power that we can actually access via the state governments and the township governments. But again, let's go ahead and get back to the essay. But rhetoric and history go hand in hand. The rhetorician always speaks out of historical consciousness because his problems are existential ones. 
The fact that Randolph is here employing a rhetoric of an energetic kind must not blind us to the realization that he is addressing himself to a deep-line problem. The problem of whether subtle reasoners who leave out the kind of knowledge and consciousness that I am placing under rhetoric should be permitted the direction of practical affairs where their decisions must involve many other people returns on various occasions to perplex us. Randolph's style of thought and utterance was that of the statesman, rhetorician rather than the dialectician. This is to say, he did not pass through methodical trains of reasoning, but dived at once to his concluding proposition and tried to make it vivid with illustration. He did not rely upon drawn-out logic for his persuasiveness, but rather upon the world's body, made real and impressive through concrete depiction. In gathering up the significance of his style, we can profitably attend to some points made by his biographer Baldwin, quote, His conclusions did not wait upon long and labored inductions. His mind, as by an instinctive insight, darted at once upon the core of the subject and sprung with an electric leap upon the conclusion. He started where most reasoners end. It is a mistake to suppose that he was deficient in argumentative power. He was as fertile in imagination as most speakers. He was only deficient in argumentative forms. His statements were so clear, so simplified, and so vivid that they saved him much of the laborious process of argumentation. Much that looked like declamation was only illustration, another form of argument, end quote. He started where most reasoners end. This may well be the text that opens up the true view of Randolph's mind, and now it begins to appear that whereas logic and dialectic are the method of the scientist and the democrat, intuition is the method of the artist, and, despite the unpopularity of the word, I must use it, of the aristocrat. A dependence upon mere logic seems to be the habit of those who are afraid of the act of divination, and wisdom is a kind of divination. I would add that divination sometimes takes the form of recognizing the universal in the single instance. The direct approach springs from those aristocratic qualities of self-confidence and simplicity. Anyone may possess the intuitive type of mind, but when he does, he is prone to be impatient of those redundancies which consist of spelling out a logical process. For him, the process is too mechanical, and it is even likely to substitute means for ends. This is the ground for saying that the aristocratic mind is anti-scientific and anti-analytical. It is concerned more with the status of being than with the demonstrable relationship of parts. So with simple directness, men of this habit move to their conclusion, and their argument consists of demonstration with all the forms, colors, and pressures of the actual situation. The method is not so much a begging of the question as it is dealing with the conclusion in historical and poetical ways. Such a mind comes to wrestle at once with the true objects of rhetoric, the impulses of attraction or aversion that form men's passions. Such in part was the mind of John Randolph. An ultra-individualist, he began his career by breaking a lance with Patrick Henry and ended it by tilting against Andrew Jackson. A defender of states' rights and of the original philosophy of the Constitution, he adhered to its tenets even after they had been abandoned by the fathers of the church. To quote the inimitable Baldwin again, he was a follower neither of men's opinions nor their fortunes, and he did not feel that a bold utterance needed apology. He was the kind of person who feels that he must be right because he knows that he is a great man. There is great potential danger in this, but there is also power. In some men, the feeling is productive of conceit and blindness, but in others, it is the very substance of proof without which the forms of logic are but dry perfections. This is future Mr. Jeffersonian doing the post-production work for this episode. I made it an executive decision to go ahead and cut the episode off here because otherwise it was going to be a very long one. So what we're going to do is pick up this essay in our next episode, and then after that we may look at conservatism and libertarianism, also from Richard Weaver. But we're going to go ahead and wrap it up for today because I've already kept you guys for about an hour, so I don't want to tax y'all's attention too much because I know some of this stuff is very dense. So thank you all again for your time today and for tuning in. I really look forward to talking to you all next week. I hope everybody out there has an extremely awesome Thanksgiving and eat a whole bunch of food, but not too much, and decentralize that turkey, as I said last year, and eat some for me. But I'll talk to you all next week. Bye-bye. Little Miss Jeffersonian has made her triumphant arrival, and I can tell you that raising a newborn is expensive, so if y'all don't mind contributing to our diaper fund, I would greatly appreciate that. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your go-backs today. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to y'all next time.